Good evening and welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today we're on Mike. Mike, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Slow beginning. Now, now I've come across your stuff. You have some podcasts. You been a tour manager, a DJ. You work on a book. You have a vast amount of knowledge and stories and experience from the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, probably is your career that you're kind of putting out in different versions yeah. and different formats in, in the multimedia verse at this point. And I want I came across you on Instagram, which led me back to your YouTube page and all your, your rock and roll stories with Motley Crue and LA Guns. And, and really all that content is just kind of a, a precursor to, to, you know, some of the projects you can be working on. But could we step back a little bit and maybe do a little brief mini intro so people get an idea of what your background is sort of? Uh, sure. Uh, I started out as a disco DJ in nightclubs in the, in the late 70s in, in New York, in the, in the Queens area. Um, and that led me to everything I've, anything I've done from that point on, started from being a DJ, uh, you know, disco kind of faded out. And then the post-punk and new wave scene really started exploding. And there were clubs on Long Island that held 2,500, 3,000 people. Uh, big, big clubs. Uh, I started working in those clubs. I met more people at more record companies, which led to other things. I, I, at the same time that I was DJing in, in 79, I started working for a record distributor. A record distributor distributes product to the stores across the country. This one focused on import music. Um, I started working there at the same time I was a DJ. Um, I started meeting a lot of bands and getting more record company connections, which led me to eventually I was the director of promotions for Relativity Records in 1987 uh, with um, acts like Joe Satriani and uh, a big radio record they had was a band called the Brandos. Um, uh, and they had uh, tons of stuff. Scruffy the Cat. They also had the two combat bit, label with all the thrash stuff. Remember Two Bit Thief? I think they were on the label, too, at the time. Oh, Two Bit uh, Thief, yeah, that, that I remember that. That was on the label. Um, the combat stuff, the metal stuff, did better than anything. I mean, you know, Exodus yeah. and Megadeth and um, Possessed and Death and all those bands. They they sold really really well. Um, more so, the only real relativity stuff that sold in numbers was Satriani and Vi when that kind yeah. of thing started happening. But prior to that, you know, they didn't really sell. They were they were you know, relativity had indie stuff. Uh, Thelonious Monster, and um, uh, you know they they licensed records from different labels in England. They did Nicky Sudden records and and um, Cocteau Twins and all this kind of like college radio stuff. But it didn't really sell a lot. The metal stuff sold. That's what paid the bills, you know. The the right. but anyway. So I, I got all a little off track. But all of those things led me to um, I eventually working with L.A. Guns in '88, and then. I did that for a year and then I came off the road and got back into the nightclub world. And I, I was working at Limelight in Manhattan for uh, about seven years, every Sunday, rock and roll church. Um, and then, um, you know, that kind of petered out in the mid to late nineties when the mayor of New York cracked down on all the clubs and put everybody out of business. And that was the end really. And it never came back. There's never been a big club scene in New York city since. Um, so, you know, it, it was it was a magical time. 70s all the way through like the early 90s. It was great and and for me. And then it, you know, everything petered out, you know, Napster and there you go. It all started going downhill. It has and people have listened to my show have heard me talk about my own 
effects of it. But one of the things really great I want to tell people that you know, may not be aware, when you're DJing, DJing is like talking with like crates of, of vinyl. And, you know, you talk about this on your show, and I've, I was aware of this, you know, you had to go out and get the latest records. You had to be on it. It was not like just downloading. You weren't, there's like these live shows nowadays where you have to bring your laptop and you get canceled. This is the real deal. There's no phones. There's no nothing. It's getting vinyl. It's being on top of the system, knowing people, rolling up your sleeves. You know, that's what it was like, you know. Yeah, and, it, it, it was a different animal. It was a lot I mean, harder was, than what it is now. Yeah, I mean, you know, now guys, you know, they have this this technology where you can just you can still DJ with records, but you don't take the record off. It's the same record. It never leaves the turntable, and all it does is give you a connection to the files on your computer. So you can technically still spin, but you know, you're you're not whipping off a record and digging through a crate and finding a record. You know, you've got to you've got to be on top of your game you just can't throw in anything so you've got to you've got to really know a what to play and when to play it and and you don't want to play the same things every week so you're constantly mixing in new stuff it was yeah you had to be on top of your game if you didn't have a copy of a vinyl record that weekend you didn't have it you you were you were you know odd man out you weren't on top of your game you had to have the record you had to get a copy from somewhere. Um, so it was a constant search for that. Um, and, and it keeps you on your toes and it, it separated, you know, the, 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 the real craftsman to me from the just schlocky, whatever, I'll throw on anything um, to work in a club that held 3000 people is a lot of pressure. So you had to be good and you had to be on top of your music or else, you know, find somebody else. It's so, like boxing. You're as good as your last fight. That's it. That's a, you exactly. Know? Exactly. You know, there, there were great nights, there were good nights, and there were bad nights. I mean, not, not every night was great as far as being in the moment and doing the right thing and playing the right records. It, it, it was a tough thing. It, it, and, you, you know, you didn't get paid very much. And you worked yeah. for, you know, eight hours and uh, hot, humid, smoky, everyone was smoking cigarettes back then. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was not good conditions, but I loved yeah. it. So I, I would have done it for free, honestly. But but uh, everything I have ever done in music started from being a DJ in a nightclub. I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but that's how it all started. Yeah. But it's important that people see the difference of the vinyl, the digging, the adventure of finding the right songs, getting the right imports. It's the whole process. It's not even the, the end product is a reward, but there's so much else involved in it, which I noticed with a lot of the work you've done. You do a lot of on the journey process work and prep work for the big payoff for, for like a lot of the stuff you've done. That's how I feel listening to you talk even with you preparing to become, a, you know, working with LA Guns, all the stuff you're doing day to day is keeping them going. It leads, you know, you're, you're, you're really just kind of keeping the machine going. As your personality. Yeah, so to it, me, it, I think that, it, that, that, that's how you've grown. Yeah. I've, I've always been, you know, I, I just, uh, I just have a good ear. I always had a good ear for songs and, 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 and music and picking hit stuff and, um, you know, uh, it, it was it, it was a thing where, you know, if you jumped on a record early and you were reporting that record as your number one record to Rockpool and the radio stations and Billboard and all these things, record company people would be all over you, you know, hey, number one, that's awesome. You know, what can I do for you? You know, so it was a lot of that, you know, you want to call it payola or whatever, but that's I didn't care about. I would not play a record unless, unless it was great and it fit what I was doing, no matter how much they would, you know, pressure you. So finding those songs, picking those records, 
um, you know, I can remember playing test pressings of like the Pesh Mode things and stuff that no one had and, and uh, import stuff that nobody had. And I also subscribed, there used to be a company called Disconnect. Uh, Disconnect, uh, you, you had to be a member and they only had, you know, I don't know, a hundred slots. So you had to be, to be one of those 100, you had to be really good. And you paid for this service. But what they would do was they would take hot songs and remix them and only press 100 copies. So if you had one of those 100 copies, you know, you had something that only 100 people in the world had. So right. it was, you know, and not all the remixes were great. I mean, there was a, there was a great couple that I, I still have copies of them um, that, you know, uh, no one could buy them. They weren't on the radio. You couldn't buy it. It was only 100 copies pressed for DJs. So that was what was it all it was all about was separating yourself um and you only got there from being really aggressive and being on top of it and you know bugging guys at record stores so um or record company people would hook you up with stuff you know but that's that's really it's a lost art now um you know anybody can have anything at the fingertips so it just right. takes the fun out of it to me and the exploration and the, the the digging um that was the fun i have a record no one else in new york has i mean of a hot song a mix of right. a hot song that nobody has and that, that's what separated you really it was the hustle you did and so it doesn't surprise me but how did you make the transition because i know you've talked about seeing some great shows in new haven I'm in Connecticut, so I've seen a lot of the same shows you would talk about in New Haven, like the Molly Crew shows and this and that. Were you based out like were you like in New Jersey? Like how did you end up getting to also like be like a, become like the manager for LA Guns from from doing what you did? Like how did that transition over like your skill set? That's kind of interesting to me. Well, you know, I the yeah, the, well, how that all happened was I was. Um, I was based out of, out of uh, I lived close to Kennedy Airport, which is, which is in Queens, okay. New York, and it's right on the border of Nassau County. So he's Queens, and then the first county, uh, Western County in Long Island is Nassau, and then the second county is Suffolk, goes out east. So I lived right on the border of Nassau County and Queens. I mean, going to New Haven was two and a half hours. That was nothing. You know, you drive to Philadelphia, it was two hours, you know, so... If you were into a band and somebody's going, yeah, and give you tickets and passes to a show, and we were crazy Motley Crue fans, we were there. I mean, we would drive two and a half hours. We didn't care. It was like Motley yeah. Crue, you know. So you just did it. But through working at Relativity Records in '87, let me back up a minute. I I was oh, in yeah. a in a short lived band with Kelly Nichols um, uh, on Combat Records, um, and it was that whole story is a is a that's a episode unto itself because there's a lot of story a lot of lot what of was it what band was it it was what sweet pain was you were in sweet pain i was harassing him about the other day yeah. when i was talking to him that's awesome yeah that that was uh that was you know that whole story is 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 a whole nother thing but anyway so i i had gotten kelly nichols into that band when kelly was a roadie Kelly was a roadie for a cover band on Long Island that did all new wave cover songs. Um, and two of the guys in that band ended up forming Danger Danger. So, <clears throat> so Kelly was the roadie. And then I had the ability to put this band and record together for combat. And I said, I got to get Kelly in the band because he was playing bass and he was trying to get into a band. So I got Kelly in the band 
it didn't last very long. Uh, he eventually went out to LA and, and joined Faster Pussycat. And then he was in a motorcycle accident and then he got into LA guns and blah, blah, blah. But in 87, I was working for Relativity Records and I would be out in LA like once a month on business. So every time I'd go to LA, I'd hook up with Kelly and then he introduced me to Mick Cripps and then eventually Tracy and everybody else. And so every time I would go there, those guys had no money. They had a record deal. They they had making they were making their album. They had no money. You know, their bills were paid, but they had no pocket cash. So I'd come to LA with a expense account and just take those guys out to dinner and drinks. And after doing that for like, I don't know, six months, I got a call one day in toward the end of 87 from Kelly and Mick asking me if I wanted to be their road manager. I'd never been a road manager before, but I I took really good care of those guys when I would come out every month. Plus, you know, I kind of grew up on in a, in a uh, on the street kind of. So I I knew how to handle things and take care of myself, so and take care of other right. people. So they were very they were like, "Man, this guy's going to take great care of us." Um and their manager at the time uh was not a big time manager or anything. He 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 managed the band, he got them their record deal and he helped them through all the formative that formative year of 87. Um, but when it came time to dealing with Polygram, he really didn't know the business. He wasn't a big business manager, he was like a guy that, you know, he wasn't, you know, the, you know, Lieber Krebs or one of these big management companies. He, he was in over his head. So part of the attraction for them also was that I had all this input and info and con- connections with radio all over the country and publicists and all this stuff. So I kind of helped with that. That was part of it. And the other part was I took care of these guys really well when I would visit. So they're like, you got to be our road manager. At the same time, I got an offer from Atlantic Records to come run their heavy metal department. Um, And I just, I had been sitting in a cubicle at Relativity and I was just trying to get away from that record company cubicle life. I just gotten bored with it. And then they offered me to say, come be our road manager. And I did that for a year. Um, you know, uh, and part of the reason I can remember a lot is I wrote stuff down, but I also wasn't a 25 a, a year road guy that burned out and you can't remember anything because it just all bleeds into each other. I did it for a year and was able to reflect back and look at my journals and notes. And, and you know, that's how I know all this stuff, because it was it was not it wasn't my uh, career move to be a roadie or anything, you know, Um so that's kind of like how that happened with LA guns. Um, you know, it was, they, I just, I took care of them really well when I was out in LA and they were like, we need this guy in the road. Um, well, that makes sense. Now you, you share that. Thank you. Um, what, what were the day to day to be a manager, like a road manager, like people that don't know, what was it like back then as a road manager that you had to, cause I know you have a lot, a lot of things, crazy things you put together, but you know, what would a day to day look like a little bit for you? It was, you know, it was a, you know, you have to just forget about being a road manager and just think back to 1988. So there's no computers, there's no cell phones, there's no GPS, um, there's no Venmo, there's no, no one had debit cards. So everything was cash. Um, You're traveling across the country on a bus with a paper map. And, and, you know, I had rolls of quarters at all times, you know, 20, 30 rolls of quarters for phones because you had to call LA all the time to the office. Um, and you know, you didn't, you didn't really, you really were out there like pirates, like, you know, I mean, 
you know, it was a, the day to day was just you, you, there was really no, you know, pattern. You know, you'd think you would have a plan, but it would get thrown out the window usually right away because there was always something going on. But um, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was, uh, and plus the management was not as organized for LA guns, which made my job more difficult. Um, You know, whether it was financially and the finances of things or just organization, they didn't have a big booking agent, which made things Mm -hmm. difficult because, if you're booked by the same people that book ACDC and Cinderella and Kiss, no one's going to mess with you. You know, you're going to go to the club, you're going to get paid and you're going to leave. You know, we had no one else on our booking roster. The only, only artist they had of any merit was this guy, Charlie Sexton. And, and, you know, it's like, so if they didn't want to pay us for whatever reason, or didn't want to pay us our bonus, you know, well, well, we, we won't get the Charlie Sexton gig. They don't care. They want. They didn't want Charlie Sexton anyway. So we got screwed with a lot financially. You know, we always got paid, but it was you know, you got into situations that you hope you would get out of because you know somebody didn't want to pay you and you didn't have a big agency behind you for the muscle. You were kind of screwed. Um, so, uh, but it was you know it was a gig to gig, hotel to hotel. You know. Um, I talk about a lot of this stuff in my videos on YouTube. I, I tell some stories. I mean, it was, it was very stressful. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of tension between, you know, you had three guys that had never toured before. And, and then you had Steve Riley, who had been in Wasp. He had, I think, three major la- label record deals before he even joined LA Guns. The guy was very seasoned. He was older than them by six, seven years. And, you know, he wanted things a certain way, you know, the guy, the other guys could care less. If you say, look, there's no hotels all week. We're sleeping on the bus. Great. They wouldn't care. You know, but Steve was like, no, he, he had to have hotels and, you know, decent hotels and, you know, move his room 10 times because it's too noisy. It was, it was a lot of tension with that. Um, you know, I'm about to, uh, I haven't done a YouTube video in a while, but I'm about to do one soon about the whole, how LA guns started falling apart and the fights and the arguments and how it all fell apart. So a lot of it was just tension from day one. I mean, you know, Steve got in the band because um, he didn't have a gig and he convinced Tracy that he, you know, you don't need the drummer you have. The drummer you have, which was Nikki Alexander, Nikki beat the drummer you have is a punk rock drummer. You're never going to make it with a punk rock drummer, punk rock drummer. You need a, a real pro drummer like me. And that's how Steve got in the band. And they threw Nicky Beat out. He's on the first record, but his picture is not on the album, but he played on it. Right. And Steve's picture is on the album. And then, you know, so that's how it all started. So, you know, eh, you know, Steve is a great drummer. He, he's really good. But by that one move, L.A. Guns used to be like a, like a harder-edged lords of the new church. They were much more alternative and punky sounding and rough and raw. Yeah. And then they get Steve Riley, double bass drums, and like that, they became a heavy metal band, like like that. So it, you know, it's just, I always I always compare it to when Peter Chris left Kiss and they got Eric Carr. Different kinds of drummers. One's mm-hmm. a heavy metal, heavy pounder, and Peter Chris was a, kind of like studied with Gene Krupa. So yeah, jazz, right? So change the sound of the band. Uh, Steve Riley changed the sound of the band for LA Guns, and they they you know 
when I first saw LA Guns, Steve wasn't in the band and they, they were like much more, uh, I don't want to say they were like Guns N' Roses, but they were much more in that vein. And then once Steve joined, you know, Steve and Tracy always wanted to be Led Zeppelin, you know, and that whole, you know, thing. And, and I mean, which kind of, there's songs on Cocked and Loaded and, and the Hollywood Vampires that have that Zeppelin thing to them, you know, oh, yeah. the galloping bottom type drums and all that stuff. That first LA Guns record is, is that's the sound and the look of the band that got the record deal. And it was never the same once Steve joined. Yes. They, they, they might not have ever gotten to, you know, I mean, they had a top 40 hit with Battle of Jane, but they might not have ever gotten to that point without Steve because Steve handled a lot of the business. Steve handled all the business really because no one else wanted to do it. So Steve was experienced. He handled the business. And through all that, he got more powerful and more powerful, got rid of the first manager, got rid of the first booking agent. They signed with Alan Kovac, who now manages Molly Crew, and they got bigger booking agency. And Steve slowly started taking control of the band, um, which he did. Um, yeah. But no one, no one stopped them because no one wanted to deal with any of the business. So... Yeah, that's how you got two LA guns. That's how there was this who owns the rights and who owns the name. And, you know, while everybody else was screwing around, Steve's filing filing forms and papers. You know what I mean? So it's unfortunate. I, I, I don't have anything against any of those guys. I mean, I knew Steve Riley before he joined LA guns when he was in Wasp. So I, I, I don't have anything against anybody. It, it was a lot of fun, um, but there was a lot of tension and a lot of crossed lines because you know some people wanted to be a star at any cost and some people were loyal and surprising because i mean well i just saw the the, the uh, riley's guns uh that long ago at uh well son and um and, and kelly was obviously he's in the band there got to hang out with him but i thought in the beginning i, I knew he wasn't the drummer on the album but it makes sense because the albums the first one and the second one totally different albums you know the songs yeah. to me are so different. It's, it's but at the time a lot of bands were sounding their first album was sounding totally different than their second one. I mean, Faster Pussycats at first and second, night and day difference. So it didn't seem too much out in the at the time because of all the bands that were doing these crazy debuts and these next second albums are you know huge sounding. But the drumming, thinking back now, the drumming style is is like that. But I also remember um, hearing that. Uh, Tracy was always the one who wanted Steve in the band because he wanted Steve as a drummer, wanted Steve as a drummer. And so if, I, I always thought in the beginning things were a little bit better. I didn't realize that the dynamic of those two guys. It goes way back. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, that incident that I t d discussed on my YouTube channel, I mean, you know, it was never going to come to blows. You know, it was a stupid <laughs> fight just to begin with. I mean, what a, what a waste of time as a musician. They just puffing their chest out. You know, it was, it was, you know, Steve's a, a, an Irish guy from Boston. He's, he's all about respect. Uh, I understood Steve very well. Um, but like, he's like, yo, man, my wife's on the bus. You don't watch a corner when my wife's on the bus. And Tracy's like, well, this is a rock and roll tour, man. Like, you know, screw you. And, and, you know, Steve wasn't going to have, Steve wasn't having it. You know, I mean, it would have never been a fight. Steve would have killed Tracy. Right. I mean, Tracy couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. But, 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 you know, Steve, it, so it started back in 88. I mean, it was the tension and, you know, um, uh, 
And little by little, because I, even after I stopped working for LA Guns, I would go back out on the road with them in 89 on Cocked and Loaded. And, you know, Mick would call me up and they hated their road manager and the road manager's horrible. Come out and hang out. You know, you, you just, you know, I, you not, I wouldn't make any money, but I would, wouldn't have to pay for anything. I'm like, okay. So I, I, I wouldn't go out for a couple of weeks, two, three weeks and hang with those guys. Um, and, you know, that whole thing was so, I mean, you know, tractor trailers and stage sets and opening bands. And I'm like, you guys have a gold album. Like, you, you know, it was too much, too soon, too fast in my eyes. You know, they, 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 they didn't make any money. They got themselves deeper in the hole with the record company because that tour cost a lot of money to keep on the road. They had two opening acts. They had all the staging, the lights, the PA, you know, two buses, all that costs money. And you're basing that off of a band that had a gold record. Um, you know, um, I don't think to this day, the first LA Guns album has ever gone platinum. I don't think Cocked and Loaded has ever been certified platinum um, in America. Uh, in Japan and stuff, it was different, but yeah, you know, it, it just they 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 really and that I put all that down to really, uh, you know, Steve and the new management, and they wanted to be, they felt that they needed to be headlining, and I thought on that second album, Cocked and Loaded, they should not have been headlining; they should have been opening for people, uh, selling more merch than the headliner. That's your that's that's what you want to do. Is you want more, you want to open up for, you know, I don't know, whoever was big at the time, Cinderella, I don't know. You want to open up for somebody that's had a platinum record and sell more merch and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But they really wanted to go and headline, and I thought that was a bad move. I flew into that first show somewhere in Texas, and I came in through the back of the venue, and I'm like, man, there's two buses. There's like three trucks. I'm like, what? These guys, you know, we, we had a, we had a, you know, 28 inch U-Haul, uh, you know what I mean? It's like, what, what, how, how does this warrant this big thing? It, it, it didn't, um, you know, they played, I saw shows on that tour that were half full. The opening bands didn't really bring anybody tour, tour and dangerous toys, nothing against them, but they didn't draw really. Um, it was just, and I, again, they made a lot of bad moves. I thought, you know. Once they lost their original manager, they lost the original vision, and then they would—they just wanted to be big. Uh, uh, well, not everybody. A couple of guys in the band wanted to be big, and whatever we have to do, you know. Somebody said, "Yeah, we're gonna, you know, get rid of th- this guy and this guy." Okay, go ahead. Like, they, you know, that's kind of the attitude. Because let me just put it into context. Also, Tracy Guns is the Guns and Guns and Roses. That's all you got to say. So he was in that shadow of that, that whole time. So when every interview he did, they wanted to talk about Guns N' Roses. And when that's going on constantly, you just want to be big on your own and you'll do anything to be big. And that's kind of the attitude. It was like, we, you know, we're tired of being in the shadow of Guns N' Roses. Um, But I mean, I love LA Guns, but they were no Guns N' Roses. You, You know what I mean? It's that, those five guys in Guns N' Roses were a unique combination you never see that again. It was so special and magical. Um, those guys were the real deal, like real deal, you know. Um, LA Guns, they weren't street like that. I mean, none of those guys in LA Guns were street. None of them, you know, they were all middle class kind of people. Um, so 
you know, but I saw this kind of develop and, uh, you know, it's hard to just say why it all happened the way it did. But when you see it, like you brought up that incident on the bus in 88 with Stephen Tracy. Day by day by day, you just see it happening. You know, the, the, that was early the pulling apart of the, the gang. Yeah, I mean, they stuck it out because, look, if 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 somebody tells you, yeah, we're going to double platinum record, you're going to be all over radio and just hang in there. You're going you're gonna to hang in there until you can't hang in there anymore because it's I'll, I'll deal with this guy I can't stand in the band so I can hopefully be big. You know, a lot of bands go through that. You know, I, I read a lot of books and uh, I, you know, I just, well, it's funny. You just did, you did the podcast with uh, Steve Gorman. I just finished reading his book. Yeah, that yeah. guy's book is incredible. Isn't incredible. It? I mean, you want to see what it's, that, what a rock and roll band is like? Read that guy's book. Well, you know, it's always, it's always to me, you know, your, your, your first and second albums, whoever's on those records, that's what people identify with as the, the classic version, you know? But I know, but he wasn't even on the first one, though. That's the whole thing, the, the, the illusion of not even being on that first one. Well, his, his picture was on there, but I he know. didn't play on it. So, so pe- a lot of people don't know that. So, I know that. So, you know, but that's the, that's the classic band that Polygram promoted, that they put lots of money into. That was the big machine promoted those five guys. After that, and then it was just indie labels and just trying to stay afloat and pay your rent. I mean, and I, I get that as a musician, you got to play, but man, there's been some, I saw some versions of LA guns over the years that just, you know, I was just like disappointed. What the, what is this? Like, you know, the hardcore version was the worst. The hardcore version was the worst. That was, that was right. That, um, American hardcore. I think that is the album. Mm. That was where I'm like, I can't, I just, that's why I stopped going. And eventually I went back to listen to something, you know, the years, but that was the album that was it for me. I was like, I'm done. I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. These guys, that was just not even. Yeah. I mean, that's um, just chasing trends. You know, Tracy right. was always like that. He was always somebody that whatever was going to be, whatever was hot, he wanted to be that, you know? I mean, he wanted to be. Brides of Destruction know, is what happened to that, you know? He quit, he quit yeah. to do Brides. And that's, I think, probably the beginning of the big legal disputes of the name because that's, he kept walking after that and then. I think he had like, what, legal legal gentleman, and then he did something else for a while, and he kept popping in and out. And you get Steve in the background doing the business, you know. And, yeah, you know, Tracy and, and evolved. Yeah, into that. Not cool. I mean, he, you know, I mean, you know, uh, I, I remember when he wanted to be John Fushante from the Chili Peppers. You know, he cut his hair and he started wearing, you know, crazy shorts, and uh, I mean, you know, so whatever was the trend is where he went. Um, which is, you know, like, like I said earlier, the ver the, to me, the iconic LA guns is the image on the back of the first album. That to me is what LA guns is. But again, that's my opinion. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I understand, you know, train chasing a trend to try to stay afloat and appease the record company or whatever you have to do. Um, but I don't know. It was just, it's the same thing of, you know, Tommy Lee with cornrows in his hair trying to be a hip hop guy. I, I mean, it's just like, you know, do you ever see the Stones or, or any of those conic bands, you know, try to be anything other than what they were, ACDC or, uh, I mean, you could go on and on and on. You yeah. know, they didn't chase anything, they just were. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, to stay afloat, LA Guns should have not, you know, progressed, but, 
they really went to extreme sometimes to me, like American hardcore. You know, not a hardcore was, band. No. You know, Sex I, I do and tattoos, you know. Yeah, well, at this point, I got to say, I think of all the different water versions since the original, I do think the last couple albums of this LA Guns uh, are their strongest in a long time. And, and, and Riley's version, I like those two. I like, you know, the, first, the album they did and the single, you know. They are at least. Yeah. It's different because Riley's I mean, version, I like it. I like the, the song. Very interesting. It's very different. It's a different version of LA Guns sound, but it still feels like it's got that dirty, honest feeling, you know. Yeah, that that's their whole mo is to is to make Riley's version is to make records that sound like what LA LA Guns fans expect rather than right. to do something different. Um, you know, look, I I just you know I'm happy that they're all out there and still doing it. I mean, um, you know, Tracy and Steve, I mean Tracy and uh, Phil being together yeah. are, you know, those two. I mean, it, it's it's good for the brand, um, you know. But you got to remember something. L.A. Guns never had hit songs. And if you don't have hit songs, it's tough to exist. You know, Ballad of Jane um, was a song Tracy fought and fought and fought to keep off that record. Tracy said he was going to quit the band if Ballad of Jane was on Cocked and Loaded. And that was a top 40 hit. He he literally said, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm not going to be in a band with that record, or that song. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's incredible. Yeah. he So... You know, it, it's just what 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 you have to have a hit song. You know, Motley Crue had hit songs. Um, you, you know, radio songs that people still sing. Um, you know, uh, Doctor Feelgood came no, out nice and polished. You know, yeah. I mean, them. nothing on nothing on the first LA Guns album was on the radio, uh, really. Uh, <clears throat> second album. Rip and Tear got a little bit of rock radio play and then Ballad of James was top 40 hit for like a week. It Isn't was in the top 40. Though? What's that? What about Never Enough? That, that did okay, right? A little bit of Never MTV Enough play. Did, yeah, well, again, MTV played the videos, but as far as radio, they didn't get a lot of radio play. Um, you know, uh, Ballad of Jane got the most radio play, um, but it hit the top 40 and then quickly dropped again. They didn't have the legs. Um, okay. you, you know, uh, MTV, yes, MTV helped sell records for them. Uh, Never Enough was a, was a big video on MTV. Ballad of Jane was a big video on MTV. Um, Rip and Tear was the first video, kind of set the record up. Um, but, you know, they didn't have hits, you know. Um, and if you don't have hits, I mean, you know, it's, 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 you can't survive to me. You, 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 you look at bands like, uh, I don't know. Some of these old new wave bands had one big hit, but everybody knows it because it's in the, you know, the 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 paper towel commercial. You do you know what I mean? So it's like yeah. they're able to go and tour and do casinos and stuff and make good money because they have a hit song that you still hear on oldies radio. So LA Guns never had that. They didn't weren't a, a, a they, they tried to be that on Hollywood Vampires. Really. They tried to be you know, shift to be more of like a rock band with radio songs. There's a couple good songs on there. It was, I think there's a couple good ones on there. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad album, but it was a little, you know, that's 91, and then Nirvana came out in 91, yeah. and there you go. So it's just... Vicious, you vicious know, cycle? When, when, circle, when your shirts say one. sex, booze, and tattoo. What's that? Yeah. I like the one after that. It was a vicious cycle or circle? I like that vicious, one. So that's an, that's an interesting that, that record. That was the one. 
that one I liked. I thought, okay, we got something going on. And that was after that. Then they fell apart again. And then American Hardcore sometime around that time. And um, the, it was just too much. That's when, you know, it's like potential. And then, it, you know, it's the last good shot. Well, out the there. band, by Vicious Circle, the band had kind of broken up uh, by that point. Uh, Tracy had left. Um, and uh, Tracy had an, uh, Tracy had a big falling out with Phil. Uh, and then Tracy left. So basically, Polygram said, look, you owe us another record. So that Vicious Circle album was written and put together by Phil Lewis, Kelly Nichols, and Mick Cripps, those three guys. Steve had been fired. Tracy quit. So they had to do this album. So they, if you if you really look at the credits on that album, they brought in a lot of musicians. They brought in you know, Myron Grumbacher plays drums on some stuff. They brought in different drummers. They brought in different guitarists. They had different, a lot of different people were on that record. At the very end, Polygram found out Tracy wasn't in the band and said, well, he's, you can't, he's got to be in the band for this record. We won't accept it if he's not. So they had to ask Tracy to come back. He played on a couple of things on Vicious Circle. Then they went out on the road. I don't, didn't they played? I mean, I think they played like CBGB type places at the time, and you know, just the record was pretty good, but didn't go anywhere. But Tracy and Steve Riley had really nothing to do with that album. That was all Phil and Kelly and Mick. That was all that was left of LA Guns. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Of all the group, of all the two people to not have in the band, is those two guys that are the most dynamically opposed to each other at times. Had them both out, and the other three guys who are in. It's pretty interesting. I mean, Mick's always been quieter too in the background. You know, Phil obviously has had his own issues with the guys, but Kelly and Mick are always the, the quieter ones. Yeah, Mick always Mick is the diplomat. I mean, Mick Mick always rides down the middle. He doesn't take a side. Um, Mick was always very focused. Uh, Mick was a very big part of the band, even getting a record deal in the, in the in the beginning. I mean, Mick was nothing went on with that band without Mick giving his okay, pretty much. He he was very important in the band in that sense, and um. You know, Mick doesn't get enough credit, but Mick was a big part of L.A. Guns the whole beginning days. Um, um, by, but by, by the time Vicious Circle came around, I mean, he was already, you know, he wanted to nothing to do with it. Yeah. I mean, he did the Burning Retina record. You know, uh, Mick's been the most prolific, uh, putting out multiple records with multiple projects. I mean, over the years, Burning Retina and The Brutalists and... Um, Mick is really into playing. I just, I was out in LA recently. I saw him. He, he plays every Friday at this British pub in, in LA. Um, and they do all covers, you know, like pub rock, 50s, 60s type stuff. That's cool. Um, Clem Burke from Blondie plays drums a lot yeah. with them out there. And, um, but he does it because he likes to play, you know, but he just doesn't want any of the drama. He hates to be associated with LA Guns. He just, he hates to be associated with LA Guns because of what it's become. It, right. You know, it's embarrassing at times to him. So he kind of stays in the back. I don't blame him. And Kelly, but, Kelly, you know, Kelly didn't do anything for a long time. Kelly, Kelly was a dad for, you know, eighteen years. Eighteen and then years, yes. That and after the, after his, and then his daughter, you know, got old enough to go to college, and that's when he kind of started hooking up with Steve again. This is fantastic. I've learned a lot of stuff I didn't know about. I, I've done a lot of different stuff in the days. I never learned as much. But I want people to go to your go to your your YouTube page. I'll have all the links underneath this on the podcast and on the um, YouTube show. Your Instagram. Uh, do you have a Facebook page? 
I, I just go to your Instagram and your YouTube page. Do you, do you have a? Yeah, no, no, no Facebook. Um, if you get to my Instagram, there's links there to my YouTube page because, yeah. you know, it's hard to find these pages sometimes, you know, if you just type in a name because multiple people can have the same name. So get to my Instagram, 1985 Road Dog. Um, there's a link there to my, to my YouTube channel <clears throat> with all my videos. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the more the merrier, man, if, if people dig yeah. it, I'm, I'm happy. And people need to do both because here's the thing you don't, it's not actually a copy of it's They go together like a companion piece because you're showing photos of one but on YouTube. You're talking about and telling the stories. You're not getting like duplicate media into your feeds for people. So you're getting Instagram pictures of pictures you've never seen before. With a little blurb of the main story, and then you go to YouTube and you're hearing a, a good story that you've never heard before from somebody that was actually there and remembers it. You're not going to get that in yeah. a lot of places nowadays. Well, I mean, I I just happen to have a lot of photos. I was always taking pictures. Um, I I mean, I have so many, and and uh, you know, there's a lot I can't post. But there's, um, you know, yeah, I I started out with the Instagram channel, and then people would ask me questions about the photos, like, hey. What was the story behind this? So then I just started. I said, "Well, I'll just start telling stories on YouTube," and that's kind of how it all happened—the um, story behind the photo, kind of thing. Um, but um, yeah, the, the the Instagram channel is is doing well, and I'm I'm pretty encouraged, and and people seem to be digging it. Um, you know, people always want me to talk about things that are like, you know, I do have a line I draw, like I, you know, <laughs> I just don't talk about just anything. I, I mean, there's stuff oh. that's gone down that. I won't talk about um but you know that's those that's are interesting stories you're sharing you don't you want to be a human there's a morality there's a, there's a whole point where it's just trash talking there's, there's a point just showing about the business of the part of the band the dynamic the public version that's entertaining or it's interesting is a a fan of the band you know how it got to hear to hear why the album sounded like this what you really heard because there was no internet back then there was no real interviews you know that's interesting but yeah you don't need to air everything um well you know yeah that was the whole impetus with the with the with the instagram with the with my photos was because i always say if this social media existed back then there would be no need for me to post any of these photos because they'd be all over my social media so the fact that there was no social media the photos become more valuable because here's a photo i have the picture some of them i still have negatives you know and it's just like well this is it right here it's like you know so it's fun for fans to see these photos because it's not like something you would have seen in a magazine um and they're all mine you know every pretty much 99 percent of all the photos on my instagram are my photos um so um it's it's i'm just glad people dig it um you know uh, some people are very cool and and i correspond with people they ask me questions and uh, hey look man i know what it was like to be a fan when i was a crazy yeah. kiss fan in the 70s man to have to be able to talk to somebody that worked with the band i would have been like over the moon so i remember that stuff and i'm like yeah. you know you're talking to some 18 year old kid that lives in south america you know he's just so excited yeah. it's and i understand that well, you've actually said a lot of things, and for me, and I read a lot of books and do a lot of, you know, <laughs> a lot of history. So I appreciate just hearing, you know, your stories and today talking. I learned some things, which is really good, you know. For me, you've talked in your channel, and I want to end and let people keep an eye out or ear out rather that you are going to do a book. I'm sure you'll post the yes. information on your social media, so people should be aware of it. Enjoy, enjoy this as a precursor, even more stuff 
that Mike has in his cannon to put out there. You know, it's just yeah. it's the iceberg. My book has been finished for a while. Um, you know, I, I was trying to go the regular route of publishing and, and going with somebody that could also market it and promote it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just, not, you know, it's been, I've been hitting a brick wall. So I'm going to self-publish, it looks like. And, mm-hmm. uh, but yes, all that will be on my Instagram. Uh, you'll, I'll have posts about, you know, when it's available. And um, the book covers my life in music, uh, first as a, as a fan, and then somebody that eventually started working in the business. So it covers, you know, mid-70s to like mid-90s. Um, of my, it's my story of my time working in music and how I got to where I got and how it all happened. Um, and you know, I, I'm, I, I start off the book with a little prologue, like, uh, you know, who am I? I'm nobody famous, but I, 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 I was lucky enough to be able to live a lifestyle that put me in, a, in the middle of a lot of big cultural changes in music and, and, and just in, in life in general. So, um, you know, it's a story of a time and a place. It's a, it's a time capsule. Um, and, you know, people dig it. Great. If they don't, whatever. I, I mean, it's my story. I wanted it out there. So, you know, I, I've gotten, as I got, I've gotten older, I've gotten very big on preserving and leaving behind stories and information. Um, we could be also passing down family stuff to younger kids in the family and, stories and stuff because you know after two or three generations man it all washes away so if you don't write it down or have a video or something so people can use it as you know information and reference one day it'll just disappear that's also part of the drive is i want people to be able to go back and watch this watch those youtube videos you know years from now and they get brought back to a time that doesn't exist anymore yeah I want, I want to thank you. This has been awesome. I appreciate it. And I want people to come, go and click and subscribe to both the sites. You'll, you'll definitely get your, uh, your enjoyment on and, and learn a lot. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Anybody that asks me, I always do it. And, and, and I appreciate you wanting to help me. And I, I hope that people respond favorably to the chapter here on your, on your uh, channel.